Friends, we are studying unusual characters this summer. The unusual character that I picked this week is Jehu. And the whole reason that I came about, uh, run, it ran across Jehu to begin with, I wish I could say that it was an incredibly holy and biblical reason, but it was not. Back in the mid-90s when I was going to college, there was this band that came out called Drives Like Jehu. Um, probably not most of our styles. Um, but anyway, that, they got their name from this guy, Jehu, and you'll figure out why as we study the word this morning. So we're going to be in 2 Kings. Would you uh, pray with me? And then we'll study the word together. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So a couple of years ago, uh, a few of, of the little ones started to play in their very first soccer season. And I don't know if any of you have ever experienced what an under six soccer game looks like, but it neither resembles soccer nor a game. And, and, yet, and yet, for time in memoriam, diligent, optimistic coaches have taken on the task of raising these little ones up in the sport only to watch in utter exasperation as the kiddos take the field with such joy, sit down, start picking at the grass, looking at the clouds, waving to their friends on the next field. And then, then eventually they do get it together and they start playing. And, and if you've ever seen under six soccer, it kind of looks like this. It's just like this mass of kids that just collectively moves around with the, with the ball. And, um, and then one of them does break out, and they run, and they run, and they run, and they, they run right towards the net, and they score for the other team, and it's just awesome. But you can't, you can't blame them. You can't blame these little ones because soccer is such a big deal. It comes with a uniform. They get a uniform and these little cool shoes that they love, and they have fans all along the sidelines, and then the other team shows up, and, and here, when you're in a small town like we are, when the other team shows up, there's friends. There's friends. And if they're not friends that we know already, they're friends that we're going to meet. And there is never a better time to meet a friend than right in the middle of a soccer play. And so that is, that is what happens. And we pump these little ones up for the big game. And they get excited. But they get so excited about all the things that surround it that when they actually get out there on the field, it's like nobody has any clue what we're doing anymore. So today, our unusual character is a young man named Jehu, and Jehu, totally by surprise, is going to get his big opportunity. I want you to see what happens when he finally gets a chance to go from practice to being in the big game. This is 2 Kings chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then the prophet Elisha called a member of the company of prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. You have to know that any story that starts with gird up your loins and take a flask is going to be really, really good. So Ramoth Gilead had been the site of, of the, the most recent battle for the people of Israel. If you think back to the Old Testament, they spend a lot of time in battles. They're in trouble a lot, usually brought on by themselves. And the prophet Elisha is in this place of terror. He had been trying, he'd been trying desperately to communicate the word of the Lord to the people, and the people just kept turning away from him. And he ran up against this, this woman, Jezebel. She is, she's the queen married to Ahab. 
and she has recently declared that Elisha should be killed because he was partially responsible as being a prophet of God for striking down all of her false prophets. So Elisha, if you remember, he, he goes out and he asks God, just let me die. I don't want to do this anymore. And, and God says, no, I, I've got something else for you to be doing because God's purpose, God's purpose is to continue on the story of the people of Israel. And Elisha needs to, to go out there and be a part of that. And his job is going to be to appoint a new king. Now maybe that's a little bit confusing because there's already a king in Israel. There's one currently sitting on the throne. His name is Joram. He is not married to Jezebel. He is Jezebel's son because Jezebel's husband, Ahab, is already deceased. So are you following me? We had King Ahab. He's gone. Now King Joram is sitting on the throne. Ahab was one of the worst, one of the cruelest kings in history. And of course, when he died, the succession plan is that the oldest male heir takes over. So under Ahab and Jezebel and Jerem, the Israelites have drifted further and further away from God. And God is going to have to do something here to change the course of the way that things are going. So as king, Jerem had led his people into battle and he had these commanders underneath of him. One of those commanders is a guy named Jehu. And this is the story of how we got from King Joram to King Jehu. Verse 2 says, when you arrive, this is Elisha talking to another, uh, not minor prophet, but lower level prophet. Look there for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Go in, get him to leave his companions, and take him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. Can, can you imagine getting that assignment, right? Like, I'm new to this whole prophet thing, but I'm going to go right into a war room up to some random guy, and I'm going to throw oil on him, and I'm going to tell him he's going to be king, and then I'm going to run like crazy. So he does. He arrives when the commanders are all in a meeting. So we're kind of like in the middle of a staff meeting, and he announced, I have a message for you, commander, for which one of us asks Jehu, for you, commander. So Jehu gets up, went inside. The young man poured oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Now, are you guys tracking with this? We got this, this young commander who's been extremely successful in battle. Records show that Jehu is well-respected. He is diligent, perceptive, overachieving. He's a guy that spent his whole life training, training for the big show, and he has worked his way through the ranks of leadership. But he had to have known, he had to have known that based, based on the laws of succession, he wasn't going to be the next one in line. So this was only a pipe dream for him. And then seemingly, out of nowhere, God sends this prophet, this prophet who doesn't even have a name in Scripture, to appoint Jehu as the king over all of Israel. And basically what this prophet says, after he pulls Jehu into an empty room and throws some oil on his head, he says, hey, guess what? You're going to be king over all of Israel. And as soon as we open this door, I'm going to run like crazy. 
there's not a lot of time. Not a lot of time here for Jehu to consider this, to prepare for this, even to pack. I mean, what does, what does one do with news like that? When just some random stranger tells you that you're going to be king. I mean, like, do you give two weeks notice at your old job? How, how is this going to work? So at some point, the following question must have crossed Jehu's mind. Wait a minute. We have a king. He's my boss. How do I get to be king? The prophet goes on to say to Jehu, you shall strike down the house of your master Ahab so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. So God's plan is we're cutting off the line of succession. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and no one shall bury her. And then he opened that door and he ran. He ran. He got out of there. Clearly, clearly God's plan is that Jehu's not going to do this alone. God plans on cutting off the entire line of Ahab, which is going to solve the succession problem, because if you've got nobody to ascend to the throne, we've got to go in a different direction. There's also a plan for a very gory death from Jezebel. We got kids in the room, and I thought about this, and I'm like, Ugh, you just read it on your own. It's, it's gross. Still, still though, Jehu has a plan. He, he's part of the plan here to get this thing going forward. His job in this is going to be to kill Joram, the current king. Jehu is a hitman. That's his job. Now, what do you do if you're Jehu and you've left a meeting because you were pulled away by some crazy guy that you've never met and now you're the king of Israel? Well, you just walk right back into that meeting. You just pretend like nothing ever happened. Just go right back in there. When Jehu came back into the master's officers, they said to him, is everything all right? Why did that madman come to you? It's always good to refer to a prophet as a madman, right? And he answered them, well, you know that sort and how they babble. And immediately, immediately, this is a spirit thing here, they said, liar, come on, tell us. So he said, this is just what he said to me. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Now, if this was a movie, this is that moment when everybody in the boardroom just busts out laughing, right? You're, you, you're going to be the king of Israel. But this is not a movie, and this is what Scripture says. Then hurriedly, they all took their cloaks and spread, for them, spread them for him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now, think about this. Think about this. They were in some kind of strategic planning meeting. They were looking at the battle scheme. Along comes this random person that they've never seen before. He pulls Jehu out of the room. When Jehu comes back, he says, so I'm the king of Israel. And somehow these leaders, these people who are, who are engaged in war, immediately, immediately affirm this call. There's something very reformed. Presbyterians are, are we're from the reformed tradition. 
there's something very reformed about this, this, this affirmation of a call. Now, a call is something that is t- determined in conjunction and with discernment by the whole body. So what that means for us in, in our life of faith is that I didn't just wake up one morning and decide, oh, today I'm going to be a pastor. That's not exactly how it works. At some point in my life, I felt that there was some kind of call to ministry, which is great, which is great. And I hope that all of you feel at some point called to some type of ministry. The problem is, though, that that if you try to discern the call by yourself, you may not be able to hear clearly and get a really refined idea of what God is calling you to. So the way that it works in our system is that, that you start working with your local congregation and you work with pastors and with elders. And then you work on a higher level with the presbytery. And then you go to seminary. And you can do all of those things. And you can hear from all of those voices. But until a congregation, just like this one, until a congregation collectively gets together and discerns to, that, that you are called to be their pastor or called to be an elder or a deacon, It doesn't happen because the body comes together, driven by the Spirit to affirm that call. Jehu is affirmed by his colleagues. And rather than laugh at him or brush him off, they immediately proclaim him king. They validated his calling. Thus, verse 14, Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against King Hazael of Aram, but King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Aramaeans had inflicted on him when he fought against the king of Aram. So, we have a wounded king. He's, he's on the disabled list. He's headed back to Jezreel. Jehu said, if this is your wish, he's talking to God here, let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot. He went to Jezreel where Joram was lying ill. King Ahaziah of Judah had come down to visit in Joram. In Jezreel, the sentinel standing on the tower spied the company of Jehu arriving and said, I see a company. So it's, it's just the way that you picture it, right? You've got that tower. You've got the guy looking out across the horizon. He sees Jehu coming. So Joram the king says, take a horseman, send him to meet them, and let them say, is it peace? Is it peace? Which means, is it well? Are you, are you coming because things are good? So the horseman went to meet him, and he says, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu responds, what have you to do with peace? Fall in behind me. This goes back to Jehu's request from God, that if somebody's going to come out, figure out what the plan is, help me to make it so that they don't go back to report it. So immediately, this horseman gets behind Jehu. The sentinel reported, so this is the guy back at base, he reports that the messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. So they sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have you to do with peace? Fall in behind me. Jehu means business here. He is a man on a mission, 
and he makes it abundantly clear to this horseman that he is not coming to Jezreel for some kind of tea party with Jezebel. But before he can even get to that, before, before Jehu has a chance to move this forward, we discover that like so many of us, his reputation precedes him. Again, the sentinel, the guy back at base, reports he reached out to them, but he's not coming back. It looks like the driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives like a maniac, right? He was known for his crazy driving. That's how you could identify Jehu in the distance. I, I am not one to contradict scripture, but I do think the translators got it wrong. I think it should be, it looks like the driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, a snowbird who spends his winters in Bradenton because he drives like a maniac, right? We probably wouldn't have even have noticed his driving in the wintertime. When Joram saw that Jehu was not slowing down, he got himself ready for a fight. He realizes, he realizes that Jehu has, has not come here on good terms. So Joram says, get ready, and they got his chariot ready. Then the king Joram of Israel and the king Hazaiah of Judah set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu. They met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. That's, that's kind of an important detail. Um, just, because, just because Jezebel had shed Naboth's blood earlier on. So when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? Now, don't you think that's a dumb question, right? Two of your, two of your horsemen haven't come back. You've got this guy driving like a wild maniac. You have mounted your chariot. I don't know if this is that moment when you want to go for the formalities and pleasantries of getting to know one another. And Jehu answers, what peace can there be so long as the many whoredoms and sorceries of your mother Jezebel continue? So there it is. Now you have the whole reason that this is happening because Jezebel has led the people of Israel so far astray. She is so evil that she must be stopped. And God attempted to do this in, in much subtler, calmer, gentler ways before with the prophet Elisha. But not only did Jezebel and her court fail to hear, she decided to up the ante and persecute them more. So God now is going to use Jehu to come at this in a very different way, a way that is quickly attracting the attention of a whole lot of people who otherwise may not have been all that stirred to action. And that's important for us to consider in 2018, especially when we see people come across our national and international radar. And, and our gut tells us, I do not know about this person. They, they kinda, they're kind of crazy. They're kind of like a maniac, like a hitman, like Jehu. Sometimes, sometimes, brothers and sisters, God uses people that we think are awful, even horrible to bring about his glory and to further his story by awakening his people in the world. Because sometimes the truth is we get so comfortable, we get so comfortable that it takes something pretty big to agitate us and to wake us up and to say, whoa, what is God trying to do here? And sometimes you need that in-your-face person 
to make that happen. Back on the battlefield, Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Uzziah, Treason, Uzziah. And Jehu drew, drew his bow with all of his strength, and he shot Joram between the shoulders so that the ear, arrow pierced his heart and sank in his chariot. Jehu said to his aide Bidkar, Lift him out. Throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind his father Ahab, how the Lord uttered his oracle against him. For the blood of Naboth and for the blood of his children that I saw yesterday, says the Lord, I swear I will repay you on this very plot of ground. Now therefore, lift him out and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. You've got people running around in chariots. You've got horses. You've got military men. They are on a small plot of land. What do you think is going to happen when you throw a dead body into the middle of this? Brothers and sisters, this is one of the goriest stories in Scripture. Jehu kills Joram. The throne is empty. If you think all of this is insane so far, Go home, read the next several verses, find out what he did to, to Jezebel, probably the grossest, most horrifying story in Scripture. Now, in contrast, if you remember when I started this sermon, I talked about what happens when little kids go out on the field for the first time. It doesn't matter how focused they were in practice. The game is a whole different story, especially, especially that first time when they get to play. Jehu, well-respected, strategic commander, known for his attention to detail. But when he finally gets his shot, when he finally gets the shot, he's driving all over the country like the hitman from Hades, like a maniac. It's not what we expect. It's not what we anticipate. But here's the crazy thing. Under six soccer games never go the way adults think they should go. They never go that way. But they still go, and they still happen, and they are typically a total train wreck to watch. The best thing about under six soccer games is watching parents, because the parents on the sidelines like this. They just can't figure it out. How did this go so horribly wrong? But here's the deal. Usually, usually, almost always, those games end on a high note. Jehu did not turn out anywhere near what any of us would have anticipated, Probably not our first pick to go out there and change around the story of God. But the truth is, let's just be honest about this, brothers and sisters. Most of us, we don't turn out the way that the world anticipates either. But I would remind you of this important truth. The Old Testament is not the story of Moses. It is not the story of David. And it is most definitely not the story of Jehu. It is the story of God. And God is known for taking those things that have a proclivity towards evil and using them for his good. So don't write off those who lead because they didn't turn out to be exactly what you expected. Stick around for a little bit. See what God is going to bring out of it because after all, brothers and sisters, don't ever forget, we are still in the middle of God's story until Jesus Christ comes again. Let's pray together. Holy God, we, we don't know what to do with people like Jehu, with the crazy wild maniacs. 
but we recognize the value that they have in your story is that they attract attention, they wake us up from our slumber, they move us towards action, they compel us to ask ourselves, what are you doing in the world? How do we get to be a part of that? What should we be doing as people of faith to respond? And so, Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, each person in this room would come to look at those opportunities as true opportunities to engage the kingdom and bring glory and honor to you. In your name we pray. Amen.